we approach you with a sense of joy. <laughs> we have joy unspeakable because we stand redeemed. We shall never bear the punishment for our sins. For you laid that on Christ. The burden that was lifted when you purchased us has given us new perspective. We are not the same because we have experienced the Spirit's regeneration. So we come to you with a sense of joy. We also come to you with a sense of anticipation. We are anticipating your word doing work in our sanctification. The pottery wheel is out and you're about to smooth out rough edges and press and mold the out of place into something beautiful. We need that work done among us. We need you to refine us, to do detail work on us. Keep us moldable, Lord. So we come to you with a sense of joy, with a sense of anticipation. And Father, we come to you with a sense of wonderment. We know we are about to sit under your gospel. And as this gospel is preached, it will draw and repel. It will be seen as beautiful to some and disgusting to others. Your gospel is a fan, a fan which drives away the chaff but leaves the wheat safely in its place. Because you came to us, we come to your word. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Face pale, eyes darting, sweat-drenched clothes, gasping for air, but no time to slow down and take a rest because he's not just running. David is running scared. He's running scared because he's being attacked, harassed, hounded. He is the prey and King Saul is the hunter. In one disaster after another, David has lost virtually everything. His job, his wife, his home, his good reputation, his heart is broken, and his head is spinning. Saul has placed David on Israel's most wanted list. Pictures of David are plastered on post office walls and local newspapers. He's enemy number one on the state's list. He's a fugitive, but he's God's fugitive. He's being hounded because God designed for him to be hounded. He's running scared because God permitted life circumstances to require this action. Sometimes it is the will of God for you to run scared. Scared of people that are out for you. Scared of circumstances that are crumbling. Scared of what may happen if you slow down. There was a time when David was walking confidently through life. Now he is running scared. You might have this lofty picture of David in your mind, but his life was anything but lofty. Even if you consider the David story in 1 Samuel, consisting of 14 chapters, for the majority of those, he's on the run. This text marks the beginning of a 10-year exile. David's an outlaw but an outlaw without a horse and a gun. He's alone and desperate. People do uncharacteristic things when they are alone and desperate. 
Here's how I want to go after this text. By answering two questions. First, where does God have David running scared? Secondly, how can this story help me when I'm running scared? Where does God have David running scared? How can this story help me when I am running scared? With the first question, we are exegeting 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. Exegeting, pulling out meaning. With the second question, we are applying 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22, putting it on your front porch. We must first do the work of exegeting before we do the work of applying. I'll spend a lot of time on the first and a shorter amount of time on the second. Notice verse 1 of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now let's pause here. Where is Nob? Where is the city to which David is running? Well, let's, let's zoom way out and then we'll work our way back in. You can break our earth into seven continents. North America, where we are all currently located. South America, where some of you are from. Uh, Antarctica, where none of you are from. Uh, Africa, Europe, Asia, and Australia. We need to know where God's fugitive is on the map. Where is he located? He's going to be running in the red area of the continent of Asia. And here's where the events of our chapter are taking place. David's going to be running in this area encircled in red on the map. So let's zoom in even closer. On a modern map, David is running in the area marked as Israel and West Bank and actually a little bit into Jordan. He runs to Priestville. Priestville is not an actual name. That's just what I call it because 86 priests lived there and did the sacrificial work in the tabernacle. The official name of the city was Nob. David ran to the specific city, Nob, where the tabernacle was set up. Now, notice, I didn't say David ran to the church and talked to the preacher, but ran to Nob and talked to the priest. Preachers aren't priests. I am not a priest. Priests in the Old Testament interceded for God's people. They stood between God and the people. After Jesus rose from the dead, he's the full and final priest. He alone stands between men and God. There are no more priestvilles. Charles Spurgeon expressed well my thoughts toward men who, who call themselves priests today. He said, we hate the very thought of being priests. I would sooner be a devil than a priest. With the exception of being what all Christians are, priests unto God. Let me justify that strong remark. Of all pretensions on earth, there is none so detestable as the pretense of being able to bestow grace upon men and standing between their souls and God. Anyway, that was quite a departure from our text, but I felt like it needed to be said. So the, the, the priest steps out of the tabernacle and he sees 
face pale, eyes darting, sweat drenched, clothes gasping for air, David coming toward him. And he goes out to meet David and he's extremely alarmed. What are you doing here all by yourself and not a soul with you? See, David was famous in the land, more popular than Saul. He was second in command. Seeing this man walking alone in your city would be like seeing the president of the United States walking alone on the Greenway with no secret service, no helicopter, no giant presidential footprint. Where is the royal entourage? Verse 2, And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So David answers this question two ways. First, I am alone because I'm, I am on a top secret special Delta Force mission. Secondly, I am alone now, but I will meet up with the elite team later. Now let's stop here. David just lied. He's not on a special mission for the king. He's not meeting up with other military forces later. This is a blatant lie. I, I am about to ruin your nice little categories you have for people in the Bible. Well, this is a good guy, a truth teller. This is a bad guy, a liar. David is God's fugitive, but not a perfect one. Even those who love the Lord in moments of desperation can excuse sin. In the Bible, we are not presented with the best world or the ideal world, but the real world. David will deceive the high priest with several different lies told in quick succession. And I love this text because it puts on display real life. Something happens to us, and we are in the right. We are sinless in the matter. We begin running running scared, but somewhere along the way, the sinned against also sins. And then it turns into this tangled web of multiple people sinning, and then it just muddies the situation. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in the last year have been sinned against? I'm not going to ask who did it or how, but in the last year, you've been sinned against by a believer or non-believer misrepresented, misquoted, lied about, faced the putrid anger of someone, it's very likely you, somewhere in that, sinned as well. You started out innocent, but somewhere along the way, things began to muddy and you began to sin. Why did David lie? Well, he could be lying out of love. He's providing the priest with plausible deniability. If the king comes to the priest, the priest will be able to say, yes, I, I helped David because he told me you wanted me to help him. I had no idea he was a fugitive. I had no idea I was giving refuge to a known outlaw. Maybe his motive was sincere in lying, but he lied. Verse 3, David continues speaking to the priest. Now then, what do you have on hand Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. The priest answers, David, I, I, I don't have common bread. I only have consecrated bread. This consecrated bread was on the table in the tabernacle. You say, why was bread in the tabernacle of God? 
This bread was not there to feed God. He wasn't hungry. It was symbolic. The 12 loaves of bread were representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It was traded out once a week every Sabbath with new hot bread. And only the priests were to eat the old bread. It was a quiet witness that God sustains his people. He provides bread. And evidently the priest believed such an occasion allowed for him to give the bread away instead of eating it himself. Verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. The old priest didn't fall off the truck yesterday. The priest knows that a roving band of soldiers are not typically known for their chastity. So he asked the question, have your men kept themselves sexually pure? Sexual relations would have rendered them ceremonially unclean and therefore temporarily unfit to partake of holy bread. And David says, my men abstain from intimacy even when it's an ordinary mission. How much more for this holy mission? Keep in mind, church, David has no men at this time. David, you didn't make your men make this pledge because you don't have any soldiers. David, you're lying again. It's like you can't stop. He's alone and desperate and doing some uncharacteristic things. He's running scared in unfamiliar territory, and he's called Lyria. When you're running scared... Sinning is easier, and it at times seems like your only way out. In verse 7, we have this parenthetical comment. It really seems out of place, but the narrator will bring it back around later. Uh, There's an Edomite in the temple with the priests. It's unusual to see a pagan there, but he's there, lurking in the shadows. It's like the narrator turns the camera and shows us Doag, A vile man with a snarl on his lip that sends chills down your back. If we read verse 7 with sound effects, it would read like this. Now a certain man was there. His name was Doag the Edomite. Dun, dun, dun. We're not sure what he's doing there. But he's one of Saul's lackeys. He leads the royal herdsmen. David, in the presence of this Doag, says... Hey, priest, I'm not just out of food, I'm also out of weaponry. I didn't have a chance to grab my weapons. The king's mission was urgent, and so I I left in a hurry. Verse 9, the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. David probably sent it there previously as as some memorial of God's deliverance. How God delivered not by might or by sword. David holds the sword and it's still dry blood on it. Blood from Goliath's beheading. The text just kind of pictures Doag, dun, 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 off in the corner, listening with ears of a fox and eyes of a snake. David leaves Priestville in a hurry, verse 10. 
And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, I don't know why David would go to Gath. Gath was the Washington, D.C. of the Philistine territory. Perhaps he thought Saul would not go into enemy territory to pursue him. But it's really a shame when you feel more at home in pagan lands than you do in God's land. Maybe Saul thought the Philistines wouldn't notice him. He's not the apple-cheeked, peach-fuzzed boy he once was when he killed Goliath. He has a beard now. He hasn't bathed in weeks. He's grungy. But I don't know. I mean, think about it. He's carrying Goliath's sword in Goliath's hometown. Everyone knew that massive sword. It's like walking around with a target on your back. It's like showing up to Yankee Stadium with a Boston Red Sox shirt. Or showing up to Lambeau Field wearing a Bears jersey. David is not making wise choices. Again, this is just inconsistent with his typical behavior. One who would typically chart out his steps with wisdom. Somewhere in Gath, David was arrested. That's what the phrase, in their hands, means in verse 13. David is handcuffed and brought before the king. The Philistine officers say, O king, we arrested David. Remember David, that Israeli hero? That folk song that hit number one on the charts was about him. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Remember that song, O king? You hated that song. It was an earworm. It just kept wiggling in your ear. It was a sticky song. By the way, church, the majority of those ten thousands David killed were Philistines. Many from Gath. Verse 12, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. In the first nine verses, we find David the liar. Now we find David the madman. David realized that he's been recognized, so he panics. He thinks the only hope of escape is to feign mad. Desperate times call for desperate measures. He begins scratching the doors, getting splinters under his fingernails. He bangs his head on the walls. He lets drool, foam, spittle come out of his mouth and run down his beard. Remember, this is the anointed of God. This is God's promised king. This is the one generations later they will look back on with great adoration. Now, I know this Philistine king is pagan, but I kind of like him. I, I really like his response when he sees David's madness. He says to his men, do you think I have a lack of crazy people around here? I don't. We've met our quota of crazy. One Jewish tradition alleges that both the king's wife and daughter were mentally insane. David is, you could say, playing possum, faking insanity as a way to, uh, to escape. Now, there's an interesting contrast if you step back from the text for a bit. 
David controls his madness, and Saul's madness controls him. Now, some of my dear brothers in arms, my fellow pastors, have wrongly made 1 Samuel 21 and 22 into God's prescribed survival guide. Here's what you need to survive. You need to be gritty. You need to take chances. You don't need to be afraid to ask for things. That, of course, is wrongly interpreting these two chapters. Follow that logic and it leaves you here. If you're ever wrongly arrested, act crazy as a nut. My pastor brothers, we've, we've got to do better than this. God doesn't say David's behavior is wrong. But he doesn't commend it either. The point is, God's deliverance can take strange forms. The Lord saves not by might or by sword, but by spittle. We have moved from David the liar to David the madman. Now, David the caveman. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. David runs to Adullam. These hills are honeycombed with caves. David will learn these hills like the back of his hand. Running as a fugitive from the law, he will make his home in these hills. Any battles or pursuits going on in this area will be home court advantage for David. While David hides out in this cave, his family joins him. His brothers deserted Saul's army and they too are fugitives on the run. Even his older brother Eliab, who once doubted David, now holds him tightly. David sees his mother and embraces her at the entrance of the cave. He's a caveman, but tender. David then hugs his weak and frail father. He had to be very old by this time. Verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men that cave became a hospital an emotional hospital all the losers all the misfits all the abused came to the cave and David became their leader those in debt by being overtaxed by Saul those wounded by Saul all those bitter in soul under pressure and under stress, came to find their king. Now, I want to be sure I am painting an accurate picture for you. I am not saying that David gathers to him all those who believe in a coming Messiah. I am not saying that David gathers to him all those who are bent on keeping the law of God. You can easily fall into this good guy, bad guy grouping again. 400 men gather with David, and it's a motley crew. You have among them the social riffraff who failed to integrate into society, malcontents, vagrants, vagabonds, men willing to join up with any militia to seek vengeance. Verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please, 
Let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. So let's go back to our map here. David went from Priestville, Nob, to Gath, to Adullam, now to Mizpah. He likely went around the Dead Sea and not through it, as the arrow shows, but the caveman is running, running scared. He's not only scared for himself, but he's scared for his family. David's elderly parents were easy targets for Saul. He could use them in a hostage scenario to lure David out. David could not allow this possibility to exist. His aging parents were not physically able to run with David and his other men to escape Saul, so David puts them in a safe house in the territory of Moab. But of all places, all cities, all territories, why did David choose this territory? Well, David's great-grandmother was Ruth, a former pagan turned follower of God. You, you remember the book of Ruth. She was a, a Moabite. So there was a Moabite connection here. David has a bit of Moabite blood running in his veins. You can see God's marvelous way in this, how he plans for David's parents' protection way back in Ruth. God works in these hidden ways. God planned his kindness beforehand. They were granted sanctuary. Verse 4, And David left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Apparently, David found a stronghold in Moab and stayed there a while. Verse 5, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. The prophet Gad, who may have come from Samuel's school of prophets, remember back in chapter 19, Gad told David, I know you feel secure in this stronghold, but you need to head to the forest. God will protect you there. Now, let me step back. That's all of David's running that we will see in these two chapters. The narrator now picks up the scene with King Saul. Uh, Saul, through some apparently military intelligence, heard of David's location in the forest. When he receives the news, he's sulking amidst silence under a tamarisk tree. Verse 6. Evidently, this, this tree was instantly recognizable from a distance, like a common landmark that provided shade from the hot Middle Eastern sun. Saul takes this as a perfect opportunity to berate his soldiers. Verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul refuses to call him David, only refers to him as the son of Jesse. He can hardly speak his name. Saul's crew, his boys, 
are all people from his hometown, Benjamin. He appeals to their tribal loyalties. I've given you opportunities. I've shown favoritism toward you. You think the son of Jesse will do that for you? I've given economic advantages since I've been on the throne. I've given you positions of power and influence. He will have no such loyalty to you. Listen here, you Benjamites. Don't think for a minute that you have any future with the son of Jesse. Saul's paranoia is on full display under the tamarisk tree. He's imagining a vast conspiracy masterminded by David. He's ranting with a spear in his hand. The soldiers know his instability. He could harpoon them at any moment. Saul is sitting under a tree throwing a pity party. It's my party and I can cry if I want to and berate and yell and threaten. I'm the victim. Bad things have happened to me. I'm the one that's been betrayed. I'm the one who has been hurt. Oh, shut up, Saul. Stop your crying and your whining. Who is chasing whom? You're the predator. And David is the prey. You're the one who's made him homeless and wifeless and foodless and weaponless. But since Kyle wasn't there, no one ended up telling Saul to shut his mouth. Everyone just took it like little punching bags. Just took the verbal hits and hooks and uppercuts. Finally, someone speaks up in verse 9. Then answered Doag, dun, 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 the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Noab to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. <laughs> Doag conveniently leaves out some details, like Elimelech was nervous and asked all sorts of questions. He left out that Elimelech was deceived by David. The king blew his top when he heard this. He said, bring all the priests in Nob to me. K king, there are 86 of them. I don't care. You travel to Priestville and bring them all to me, especially Ahimelech. And every priest, all 86 of them, were forced to make the hour-long trip. Saul accuses the priest Ahimelech of conspiracy of silence, withholding information from him. And the priest is surprised by these accusations. First, he defends David. There's not an official in your administration as true to you as David. Your own son-in-law, the captain of your bodyguard. Secondly, he, he admits what he did. I gave him bread. I gave him the sword. I had no idea he was an outlaw. The last I heard, you were heaping praise on him. Verse 16. And David said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. Church, when envy, when jealousy, when hatred seizes somebody, it's volatile. 
See, sin is a vortex. Like a drain in a bathtub, that's a vortex. Notice the vortex, the progression. Saul blames David for everything. He's, he's skewing reality, finding enemies where they don't exist. He, he will not listen to counselors. His own men refused to kill the priest, which was bold on their part. Saul's men had some character about them. They refuse. So Saul finds someone who agrees with him. Verse 18. When the king, then the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priest. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Now, I've seen this vortex in marriages before. One spouse makes the other spouse out to be the enemy. Blaming that spouse for everything. And then he or she receives good counsel from someone but ignores it. And then seeks out counsel from someone who agrees with him or her. Anyway, back to the text. The Israelite soldiers would not kill the Israelite priest. So he turns to the non-Israelite, Doag, dun, dun, dun. Now we know the reason for the background music in the previous chapter. Doag doesn't hold back at all. He brutally murders all the priests, the perceived traitors. Then he travels an hour to Priestville and kills all their wives and children and dogs and cats. He butchers the whole city. Priestville is now Bloodville. Blood runs ankle deep through the city streets. By the way, Saul is willing to wipe out the priests, meaning he's willing to wipe out the priesthood. That's communication with God. All right, let's go to school for a moment. Class, how many priests were there? I'm, I'm impressed. You are listening today. This is the brilliant crowd here. Okay, there were 86 priests. How many did Doag kill? Where is the missing priest? Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag, dun, 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 the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. In other words, I knew it. The day I saw Doag, the day I heard the background music, I knew he'd tell Saul. I'm to blame for the death of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me from now on and I will protect you. So David's got his band together. Who's in his band? Well, he's got a prophet, Gad, and he's got a priest, Abiathar. We'll see what he does with that. I told you at the beginning there are two questions I want to answer. Where does God have David running scared? And how can this story help me when I'm running scared? When I answered the first question, where does God have David running scared, that was exegeting, pulling meaning from 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. Now I'm going to answer this question, how can this story help me when I'm running scared? That is applying. Now that we've done the work of exegesis, we can do the work of applying. So I've got three applications for you. Application number one. 
when you're scared and distraught, go to the Lord. David's 10 years as a fugitive produced gold for him and gold for us. David's fugitive years led to the fugitive Psalms. The fugitive Psalms, Psalm 7, 11, 12, 13, 16, 17, 22, 25, 31, 34, 35. I'm not finished. 52, 53, 54, 56, 57, 58, 59, 63, 64, 142, 143. The most beautiful descriptions of God, the most heartfelt prayers, some of the most comforting passages you will ever read were written by David as a fugitive. God has a purpose in the pain. He has a goal in the heartbreak. You have to develop the discipline. You have to develop the discipline to commune with God while you're running scared. Do you remember earlier when David was captured by the Philistines in Gath? Remember that whole scene? David, you got a little drool on your, on your beard. He's like, shut up, I'm trying to escape. Leave me alone. Well, in the middle of David being arrested, in that whole scene where he was feigning mad, he wrote Psalm 56, in which he said, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. Which shows maybe what he went through while he was uh, under arrest. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid what flesh can do to me. All day long they injure my cause. Notice this. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Hear the Philistine tell the king right at this moment, Saul has killed his thousands, David has ten thousands, this is David, let's kill him. All their thoughts of evil. David continues writing in Psalm 56, You have kept count of my tossings. He can't sleep. Put my tears in your bottle. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid what man can do to me. What is David doing? He's preaching God's character to himself while he's scared and distraught. When David was in the cave, when David was in the cave, you remember this, it was a big crying fest. There was a lot of emotion there. Um, he was crying, his brothers were crying, his mother, his father, they're all hugging each other. Remember that? At, in that cave, David wrote Psalm 57. And it gives us a peek into the cave and we, we can hear what he was saying to his gathered family. He started speaking to the Lord and he said, be merciful to me, Psalm 57. Oh God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. To the storms of destruction pass by. David is not trusting in the cave to keep him safe. His refuge is in the wings of God. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. 
God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This is what you call clinging to God's faithfulness when you have nothing else to cling to. He continues writing in that cave, scared for his life. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. I exalt your name. That's what you have to do. He continues in the cave. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. And notice this, you're kind of thinking like, man, he's crazy again. He's talking to his musical instruments. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. You know what he's doing? He's forcing himself to sing. To sing. Psalm 142, he actually wrote at the same time. That's another cave psalm, fugitive psalm. In Psalm 142, he said, Deliver me from my persecutors. They are too strong for me. Then I love this. When my spirit faints within me, I cry to you, O Lord. Application number one. When you're scared and distraught, go to the Lord. Application number two. When you're confident and encouraged, go to the Lord. After David feigned mad and the Philistines released him and they chose not to kill the crazy, it was a moment of confidence, a moment of encouragement. And in that moment, David wrote Psalm 34. And in it, he didn't say, Whoo, I am lucky. No. He said, God is for me. He didn't think, man, my acting skills are on point. Move over, Tom Hanks. I am entering the acting business. No. He said, in that, he said in that psalm, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from every fear. Magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints. He will give you everything. Magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name together. Church, when you're scared and distraught, go to the Lord. And here's where we fail. When you're confident and encouraged, go to the Lord. He wrote another Psalm 52. That's, a, that's powerful as well. Let's look at application number three. Even when you're a sinful fugitive, go to the Lord. All throughout this chapter, you find David as a schemer, deceiving, sneaky. Not everything is so crystal clear. Not everything is so black and white. Not everything fits into our neat little categories. Well, David is good. Saul is bad. David always does good. Saul always does bad. David has all the good men, and Saul has all the murderers. No, this doesn't fit into our neat little categories. The difference between David and Saul is the difference between repenting 
and not repenting. Those of you here this morning who are non-Christians, I want you to understand this. You can't make God smile on you by your good behavior. Those of you that are Christians, you need to understand this. (laughs) You think you can only pray when you're totally without sin? You think you can only seek the Lord when you've lived without lies? Good luck ever feeling like you can pray. Good luck ever feeling like you're worthy enough to approach God. No, learn from David. God comes through for you not because you keep your promises to him, but because he keeps his promises to you. When you've had an argument with your spouse, go to the Lord. When you've responded in anger, go to the Lord. God listens to you not because you're sinless, but because Jesus was sinless. You know how God's fugitives find hope? Not in their perfect behavior while they were on the most wanted list. No, they find hope because there was once a perfect fugitive. David's suffering as God's fugitive serves as a typological pattern for the anointed yet rejected better fugitive, Jesus Christ. Jesus even uses the tabernacle bread story when some of his enemies tried to accuse him of sin. In that story, he's clearly showing, I'm the better fugitive. We have hope because God's fugitive succeeded where we fugitives have failed. The authorities in our text tracked David to a forest. They tracked Jesus to a garden. They hung him between two other fugitives. He hung as a fugitive. He hung as a priest. Bridging the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. Glory be to God's fugitive. Let's stand together. Now, Lord, we have, we have walked through your word, and it has done its work in our hearts. We have seen clearly our sin. We have seen clearly our Savior. And the only thing to do is repent and move forward in grace. And so that is what we do. Father, we do not have the words to formulate how grateful we are for an undeserved salvation that you have bestowed on us. But we shall spend the rest of our days trying to formulate those words. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.